Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hey, what up? Welcome in. I'm Doug Gottlieb. This is All Ball. We got a great uh, guest for you. Several prior series we're going to do with Darren Collison, of course, at Awanda High School, UCLA, on to the NBA. And then, man, I can't wait till you hear our discussion about. Um, he was supposed to come back with the Lakers. He thought he was going to come back with the Lakers. He didn't come back with the Lakers. And he tried to make a comeback, and then he got hurt. And, oh, yeah, by the way, now he runs one of the elite training programs in the entire country. And he focuses on, this time of year, got, getting guys ready first for the draft and then uh, for their rookie season before going back to college guys all summer and pro guys all summer and then high school and, and younger kids during the regular year. So Darren Collison, part one upcoming on the pod. Uh, a couple of other thoughts. Uh, one, love that John Calipari said, hey, this is pretty easy. Let's just make everybody go back to sitting here. I agree. Grad transfers as well. You want to transfer? That's fine. But you're going to have to sit out of here. And honestly, guys that transfer and sit out of here, I can speak to this personally. It helps you. Helps you mature as a player, as a person. Um, if you really, really want it's got to, you have to have some reason to hold you back from really wanting to leave a place. Otherwise, it's just like, yeah, I'll just go I'll play one place, then I'll play another place, then I'll play another place. So it's not a punishment. You're still getting your degree. Um, he said nothing about taking away NIL. I would say you can't get NIL till you play for the team, but. Regardless of it, there does seem to be some sort of push. When John Calipari says it, that's that's a big, big name. I'm talking about the transfer portal. Um, additionally, I did want to say this about the, the news of the day is all the free agency in the NBA, free agent movement. And it's just not smart to comment on it midway through. At the time of this recording, free agency has just started. You know, Bruce Brown signed for $45 million two years with the Indiana Pacers, right? So when Bruce Brown said, hey, it's time to get paid, he meant it. And that's a gigantic loss for the Nuggets. And let's see what they're able to add because they're going to need somebody to come in off the bench and do have the versatility of skills that he has. That's a major, major, major change for the Nuggets moving forward. He played a big role this year for them. Remember, they only played seven guys most of the playoffs, and he was the guy who commanded most of the minutes off the bench, and he gives them a, di a completely different look. So it'd be dumb for me. Like, let's see where the dust settles. Let's see what happens if the Suns trade DeAndre. Let's see if Terrell Harris gets moved. Let's see 
you know, wherever. But I do think that, you know, look, there's a couple different things going on here. There's the new salary cap structure and luxury tax structure, which is causing people to shed contracts that after next year are not great contracts. And uh, those guys, suddenly you'll find themselves on the move. Some of these younger players, you know, Kyle Kuzma signed to a big deal with the Washington Wizards. You know, there's also like a, a higher floor. So you have to pay some guys. You have to find the guys you want to build around and pay them and try and keep them. And then what the Celtics do with Jalen Brown, maybe not this year, but maybe next year in terms of next year is when his new contract, if he signs it, would go live and you're talking about close to $300 million. So I, I, I think that's a big reason. You're like, why did the Celtics, like it's just about the, you know, it's just about where you are in the luxury tax and nothing else and trying to play that game of in a year, you know, who's going to have a bad contract in a year. What are we going to look like? It's, it's hard. And then you have younger teams that are trying to load up on draft picks, but they also have to get some of these contracts under their belts in order to get uh, uh, above the floor of the salary cap. So it's a really interesting kind of math puzzle, if you will. Other than that, it doesn't appear as of right now, like Damian Lillard's going to be moved. But I also think that, you know, you don't, if you're Lillard's agent, you don't call a meeting after the draft unless you're unhappy, but you're just unwilling to pull the trigger. Right. And I, I think a lot of it is like, it's kind of like a divorce. You know, you can agree to it that it's probably a good idea to get divorced. Nobody wants to be the person to file. Do they? Right. You know, I'm like, well, you filed. Do you you did well, like no, we kind of agree now. And I think that's what's happening in Portland is that he wants a divorce, but doesn't it's bad for his brand to be the guy who asked for a trade. And they don't want to be the team that traded away kind of an all-time great in Portland Trailblazers history, even if it's probably better for both parties. Last thing is this. Um, there's going to be some changes on at ESPN. You've seen and, and the way it, 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 it relates directly to all ball because, well, one, I want to have all these guys on. <laughs> Two, um, I'm a former ESPNer, and you know I don't know what that place would be like to get fired. I mean, I, when I left, I had a five-year contract waiting for me. So, And I think all of everybody I've seen who's been let go today, those are big-time people, right? There's zero, they're not like bad guys or not good at their job or whatever. But man, I'm surprised over the Jeff Van Gundy thing. I think he's awesome. I think he's just great at doing games. And I'm really surprised by it. You know, here's a guy who called the NBA Finals and now is out, out of work. And I do realize that there's a possibility that NBC gets back in with the NBA if they do. That's one of the calls that you make. Um, Doc Rivers is out there. He was very good before he went back into co when he went into coaching, you know, the first time he came back out after he got fired with the magic and he was good again. So there's no reason to think that doc rivers wouldn't be really good. And then, Oh yeah, by the way, his son Austin has been working doing some work for ESPN. So it's a pretty obvious tie there. Obviously TNT can hire Jeff and Gundy, put him with his brother, put him by himself. His work stands on its own, but that's that one. That one's the really surprising one. You know, it's one of those like nothing really surprises you except that one really surprised. Just because, you know, guys that call championship games are usually relatively untouchable unless their contract demands are too great. Unless, you know, there's something 
off the floor uh, or if there's another offer out there for him. You know, and you think about the people who call championship games in the NBA and the NFL and college basketball, like all of those guys are virtually untouchable. It's a, it's a position where you're kind of knighted. And that's the, that's the big stunner. But it also brings to mind, like I've talked to a lot of people in regards to coaching and so many, so many coaches listen to this podcast and they're driving around they're like, man, this is really great coach. And you know, our Jason Hooten podcast, I can't tell you how many coaches reached out like, man, that was great stuff. And the, the thing that's interesting to me is how many people think that their industry is the only tough industry, right? Man, coaching, tough industry. It is. It's cutthroat. It's tough. Um, you know, I would say that there's a lot of people who rightfully point out that the only unforgivable sin in coaching is losing, right? There's been guys that have been caught cheating before that they get plenty of opportunities, but the guys that don't win, even they do it the right way, they don't. Like, all oh, that's fair. But I would say that if you think coaching is the only screwed up industry, I give you Jeff Van Gundy, LaFonso Ellis, who's like like one of the world's greatest dudes, right? Like, LaFonso Ellis is uh, in, the, in the Mount Rushmore of good people that you work with, right? Like, Hubert Davis was like this until he went into coaching. And Clark Kellogg is like this. I'm just kind of vamping off the top of my head. There's lots of good people. Jordan Cornett was let go from ESPN. There's a guy who was an innings eater, did college basketball, hosted, you know, was an analyst, did radio, really good, and also a really good dude. But Fonz is like next level, awesome human being, and very much surprised that decision was made. Now, again, we don't know what goes into it. We don't know if everybody was told, hey, you got to take 25% off the top. If you do, you can come back. And he just was like, I don't want to do it. That's altogether possible. And there are some of those. And, you know, at some point you got to draw a line in the sand. You're like, this is what it's worth. You know, this is what it's worth for me to get on a plane and go fly all over the country and be away from my family. But my point is that if you want to tell me that your industry is a bad industry, I'll understand. I'll listen to you. And I might even agree with you in the short term. But uh, it's pretty obvious that... <laughs> Every industry, especially the media, can be a tough one, which is why I want to send you to Darren Carlson, because this is the part of my job that I like the best, talking to great people, meeting them, catching up with them. And I've become friends with, with Darren. Uh, I watch how he works with guys. I marvel at his thoughtfulness, even when working with the youngest kid in basketball. Like That's a special thing for a guy who's a, achieved everything he's achieved in hoop. So without further ado, uh, here's former UCLA Bruin, longtime NBA, led the NBA in three-point shooting percentage, Darren Carlson. Darren, let, let, let's start when you're a kid, okay? So I think most people know like the kind of uh, flyby version. Like your parents were both athletes, both were track stars, right? Yeah. Yeah. What, what level did they compete at? So my mom and my dad, they both, um, they met in college, and that's when they started running track. Um, my mom, she ran the 100-200. My dad I ran the 200-400. And they, my mom made it to the Olympics. So she ran to the, the Olympics. I was in Los Angeles. I think it was like 1984. 84, yeah. Um, yeah. So like my dad, I think my dad kind of, um, he stopped doing it like probably after college, a little bit after, and got into boxing. but. My mom was the one that went a little bit further and she kind of like pursued her little track dreams too after. 
So when you're a little kid, did they want you to be a track star? Did your dad want you to be a boxer? Like what, what was, Oh man, man, D, they, they, man, that was one of the biggest hurdles that I had to do. No pun intended that I had to do for myself because they, they had it mapped out that I was going to be this track star athlete. Like they, I mean, they will take me to all the track events and like, they will get me with like personal trainer coaches that, you know, that were really good with track athletes and, Every little everything that I did sports wise was how to do something with track. You know what I mean? And so like we were do relay races. I mean, I would be at events, practices. And I think for them, they were just like they didn't see like the same amount of passion that I have for basketball. And so they kind of switched gears with me. But they definitely wanted me to be like a track athlete. What What's your first memories of playing hoop? Where was it? My first memory playing hoop, I I was in the second grade in Ranch Cucamonga at a youth league. And the funny story to that was my first two baskets of the game was on the wrong hoop. So <laughs> so yeah, that that was that was my start to my journey. It's amazing. It's amazing. Now, your were your parents Jehovah's Witnesses? No, my none of my none of my family members are Jehovah's Witnesses. Just me myself. Um, I started, you know, becoming a witness. I think I probably I want to say like right before I got into the NBA, I started mm -hmm. studying a little bit more, and I just got a hook. It just started making me a better person. And you know, it was one of those things. It's like if it ain't broke, don't fix it type thing. What was what was what was their background? What like what part did religion play? growing up in your household? So my mom, she was a churchgoer. So like we would always go to church like every Sunday, you know, we had our pastors like, you know, going to our pastor, hearing her talk and her sermon and stuff. So my mom was really big. She, her faith was really, really good. I mean, still is. And um, my dad, not so much, but you know, that's when that faith kind of instilled in me. Like when I realized it wasn't just about what you did, like as far as like being a basketball player, or anything else like you know your faith is just as much as important as anything else and that helps you to become a better person which is key in everything you do like you said your mom and dad are track stars that's their push your dad gets into boxing he's into that so it's not like yep. he's taking you down to the park to work with you who's who is the guy who helped you kind of start to really uh, evolve as a player handy that's such a tough question because like growing up, I played on like different teams like every year because the youth league, like you just you couldn't play on the same team. So like they'll switch it up every year. I didn't play AU basketball till like I was like in the third or fourth grade. So maybe if I say the first person that kind of influenced like my competitive like fire was probably Ron Austin out of the Inland Empire. Um he that was like my first coach, like AU wise, and he was the one that would take me down to LA. And I, I believe we were like one of the first inland teams that would do that. Like, and we didn't at that time we didn't have no jerseys. We wore shirts for our jerseys, and we would go down to like the most dangerous parts of LA and hoop, like and have tournaments. And I think that's when I really started to fall in love with the competitive spirit and just playing against all like the best players at that age in that area. So it kind of instilled something different in me. And I and from there, I just kind of took off. Um, high school, what was the, who, what, who, what AAU team were you on? 
and he team I was on the Inland Empire basketball program team, IBP with Keith Howard, who's also too in the Inland Empire as well. Um, so he was he was very instrumental because I, I was working with Keith not just through high school but in college and a little bit in the NBA as well. And he's he's done a lot for me too. You know what I mean? He he would take me to UCLA to go play in the Rico runs. I mean, he would take me to all the like the ABCD camps at the time. Um, anything like that was meaningful to go to, like he would make sure that I was there. And so he was definitely influential. Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com. And within the iHeartRadio app, search FSR to listen live. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. You know, it's interesting, and, and I, I want to. We'll circle back around to it. But now, as you work out with, with it, work out, you know, anything from little kids to pros, your your approach. Where do you where do you draw it from? How do you how do you put together how you want to be kind of an elite performance coach? You know, for me, D, I always felt like the development side of basketball is such a huge part of this case game. It was a huge part of my game. I'm so locked into it. I had a crazy work ethic myself that I, I I believe in it. And I believe if you really work hard, you can pretty much achieve anything you want in this game. And not only just working hard, but working on the right things. Like everybody works hard, but don't necessarily work on the right things. So for me, it was like, okay, I'm going to make sure that these kids work hard, but they have the tools that they need for the next level. So whether you're in junior high and you're trying to get ready for high school, high school, trying to get ready for college, college, getting ready for the pros, I've experienced so many different, you know, pitfalls and success at each level where I kind of just, just want to give that up to them. And a lot of times it helps for them. You know what I mean? And my success goes through them now. Like when they do well in high school or, you know, they, you know, some kids are not so good, but they make a varsity team may not be such a big deal. Or one of our top ranked kids gets the offer that he wants. Like that makes me feel good. You know what I mean? And I, I just think it just comes through hard work and just trying to instill the, the right characteristics that they need to move forward. And I'm, and I'm big on the mental side of things. But it's interesting. It's like you were part of 
it feels like you're part of kind of the the both generations, right? My generation, yeah. don't get me wrong, you would work out, you know, with your coach, you'd go shoot, you'd work on your game, but usually the summer and downtime was spent in pickleball, right? Yeah, you know, back yeah. to the Rico runs or back when I was coming up, UCLA just had all their open runs in the men's gym, right? And you're just going kind of around the area looking for a place to hoop. Whereas yeah. now it feels like everything it's is awesome. about everything is about your workout guy, your workout. And like sometimes guys don't even pros don't play a ton of five on five of any in, in the off season. Um, let's go back to like when you're in high school and you're developing in your downtime, were you playing pickup or you, were you working, you know, in a gym by yourself? Uh, Doug, no, you're right. I, you know, what's so crazy I didn't start – I was playing more pickup in high school, but it wasn't until college where I started, like, trying to train more. Yeah. And I would train – man, I, I thought having three or four workouts a day was good. But, you know, some, sometimes, you know, it's not all the time. Just, just like, on your body in terms of, like, just working out so much and not playing. Yeah. But it's funny you say that because I was just talking to Kyrie uh, last weekend – and I asked them, I said, what, where is the gray area? Where, like, what do you, where do you draw the line of working out too much versus playing? And he was just like, look, like when I work out, I apply what I work out in terms of playing pickup. So he's like, I do both. And that's kind of what you see, like great players. They do both. It's not just working out every single day. It's like working out, playing, working out, playing. Or you can get into a habit where you're just playing pickup and you're not training or you're not working out getting better. So you definitely need a mixture of both. And so, like, I'm a big advocate of, like, telling our players, like, look, it's nice that you're training with us four or five times a week and you're trying to get better. But two or three times out the week, you need to be playing. You need to go out there and playing and showcasing your skills to see what works. Because a lot of the things that we give you may work for you, may not work for you. It may work for Doug. It may not work for me. So whatever you do and whatever you're working on, you got to be able to apply in, you know, in, in a pickup game setting. Well, I totally agree. There, there is a mixture. And you know, some of it is just you just kind of got to play and figure it out, figure out who you are as a player. And, you know, all that stuff, all that stuff that guys work on, it doesn't Absolutely. matter if you, can't, if you can't apply it at the right time. And you can only apply it at the right time if you see it. And you can only see it if you had a volume of volume of basketball kind of touches, if you will. Okay, so you're in high school. You get to Etiwanda. What were you like yep. as a freshman? I was skinny, small. Um, what was skinny meaning? How much? How big were you? About? How, I don't know. I think I was maybe a buck forty, a buck fifty, if that. Five nine, five ten. <laughs> Man, you bring it that's up. All not, these that's small. Like, look, that's not that small. So, so you're okay, and you were the right age. I was the yeah no I was definitely the right age I was there was no hold back at that time, um, yeah I I was small though Doug I was small and skinny so like for me, it was more of like okay quickness and and try to play defense as hard as I can because strong enough to you know get anybody to the rim you know what I mean I had to be skilled I had to shoot the ball I wasn't a really good shooter my mechanics around that time was horrible. So there was a lot of my game that was just like extremely raw. So your freshman year, did you play JV? Did you play freshman team? Did you play so, varsity? So, so, so freshman year, dang, I, you know what, Doug? I never told this part, this story. And I've always 
come back to this, but I just never told this part. My freshman year, I wasn't even going to make the freshman team. I was probably like, um, I was probably like the second to last pick to make the freshman team. So we had a freshman tryout, and I think it was going on for like three days or so, whatever. And for whatever reason, my coach at the time didn't take notice of anything I do. Maybe I wasn't that good or not, but they were picking the players. And the only reason why I got picked is because of my peers. The guys that I was playing with, they were like, no, Darren is good. Like, you got to give him more of an opportunity. And it was just – and it was literally between me and an, another guy for the last spot for the freshman team. And so one of my friends, he, he was laughing at the time because he was like, yo, this is not real or whatever because we have been playing on the same AU team. And the coach had no idea. So he end, they ended up picking me for, like, the last spot. Didn't really play that much my first three, four games. Like, I would come in the last two minutes, last two minutes of a ball game, and I would just put up, like, I think, like, a quick 10 points in a freshman game. And then the JV coach took notice of me. I called up later on in the year as a freshman on varsity for CIF. And it's interesting because it's like um... – you want to avoid like this. I'm, my, uh, it's really funny. You want to avoid that dreaded freshman team because usually they keep too many guys, right? You're not playing against great competition. You're not playing with great competition. So with, with great players. So you kind of get, it's, it's a lot like school, right? Like if you go to school and you're yeah. in the AP classes, you're on a college trajectory, right? It's all about your trajectory. Well, if you're in the freshman team, your trajectory is that to JV, yep. that to, you know what I mean? And like, once you get the opportunity with JV, you're obviously played at a high play in AAU. Additionally, you're playing with better players. And so it's going to make you kind of For sure. uh, inherently look good. So it's like a really, I, I talk to kids all the time, like go to a place to where you're not going to get stuck, you know, at that you lower level play. thing. Because then once you're stuck there, you're it's Absolutely. very, very hard to break out of. Very hard to break out of. Yeah, Doug. I, now, I look, Doug, now that you say it, like, I didn't really look at it that way from the freshman side of things. Like, but you're right. Though. You can get lost in a shuffle because the freshman teams have about, like, 15 to 20 players on one team. Right. right. And it's so hard to evaluate or to, like, pick to see, like, who can, like, move forward and stuff like that. No, you're absolutely right. Plus, it's I not totally like you're playing. And, 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 oh, yeah, by the way, like, let's just be honest. Like, the JV coach is usually the right-hand guy to the varsity coach. Whereas the freshman coach is almost always a really young guy who's just trying to figure out if he likes coaching, he doesn't like coaching, it's something to do, whatever. (laughs) Like all of those things. No, I mean, but I mean, like, look, it's the, it's the, and, and, and honestly, like my business is the same. Like it's way hard at the lower level of TV and radio. You're working with a (laughs) lower level of producer and, and whatever. And so, you know, you may all have the same goals, but, you know, it's, it's way more work. It's way harder. And you got to get, you kind of get typecast. So you got to get out of that. Um, okay. So your, your first year starting your sophomore, um, how good yeah, were you? So I was, I was good. I was, I was solid. You know what I mean? I still had room to grow, but I, I was a little bit better than I was my freshman year, which was dope. I felt like every summer I always wanted to be better. So by the time my coach saw me, I, I had something to prove to be one of the best players in the program so that was my goal sophomore year I was really good um team wise I think we were okay a little bit but it wasn't until like my next couple years where I was just like okay 
like I, I can do some stuff, you know what I mean? Still didn't get like, I wasn't like highly ranked or anything. Uh, my sophomore year, junior year, I wasn't highly ranked as well. I don't even think I was highly ranked my senior year too. Like the only, the only reason why I got an opportunity at UCLA, which I'm sure is like your next question is, you know, we happened to play a high school tournament at the, um, at, in, in uh, Riverside. And one of the UCLA coaches was there watching. I think he was watching somebody else at the time. And then he ended up taking note of me. And I ended up having one of my best high school games. And from the, from there, the rest was history. Wait, wait. So where in Riverside were you playing? We were we were playing a tournament at MLK. Okay. So you're at MLK, which, by the way, for people who don't know, that's that's Kawhi's high school, yeah, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. And then where? how old was – who else was – who else was in your class? I don't know who I can't remember who else was on my, in my class on my team. We had, um, I I want to say we had about like two or three D one guys: David Carter, Jeff Pentagraph, who's Jeff Ayers right now, um, and then Rashad Austin. I think went D one too as well. So we had about like three or four players that went D one. But this game in particular, I mean, it was. I mean, I, I, I was playing a lot of high school games, but this one high school game, I had one of my best high school games ever. And I didn't even know the UCLA coach was even at the game. What coach? And then he calls, you know, Kerry Keating. Okay, Kerry Keating's Kerry there. Keating. Yeah, and Kerry Keating's there, and then he's, he's taking note, and then he reaches out to my parents. And he was just like, look, we lo I love his speed, this, that. And I'm thinking like, okay, maybe he just wants to check in. Like, I don't know. Like, you know, maybe because I'm not highly ranked, at, you know, at this point. Like, like I'm good, but you still lay good. I'm like, I don't know. Like, I believe I could play anywhere. But in terms of like, you know, high school is politics when it comes to rankings. And then come to find out, Kerry Keaton's dad, the guy that recruited me, was my, my mom's coach at – Delphi University when she was running track. So wow. we had that connection too. Yeah. So like everything just came full circle with that. And they brought me in. I met Ben Hallen. And then obviously Ben Hallen came to more of my games. And then he was like, they just offered me the scholarship. What was it like? Because uh, I'll tell you my, so my senior year. So I get offered a scholarship by UCLA. My sister was a cheerleader there. My brother went there. Uh -huh. um, and that year they actually won the national championship my senior year in high school, 95. And I ended up going and taking a Notre, Notre Dame offer instead. And I often like wondered what it would have been like to be a UCLA signee and play, right? That, that like we know that basketball in LA, when you guys were playing there, that was about probably peak of the last 25 years in terms of the attention you guys received right lakers are good you guys were good oh. usc football was good like, like everybody but but um it's not like other places where you go to college towns and that's all they care about right um yeah. but if you're it's a little different if like you're a ucla signee and right then ucla kind of had a role in what was that what was that experience like yep. your senior year man doug it, for, for one it's it's one of the best feelings. And like, I think you said it best. It's like UCLA and the Lakers. Like those are like really good notoriety places for you as a player that to experience. It's like a dream, right? Like growing up in California, growing up in Southern California, 
those were the teams that you wanted to play for. Um, UCLA was just the team. You know what I mean? That if you got recruited by UCLA, got an offer by UCLA, like you were the guy, you were the man. And it comes with that, comes with a lot of pressure too as well and responsibility too. So there, I remember when I first signed, the first game I get back, I had players talking crazy to me, like talking trash. Oh, you posted going to UCLA, like, like all right, we want to see something, like that type of sure. – and I've never had that before because nobody really cared about where I went at the time. But as soon as I signed to UCLA, every single game somebody had something to say to me. And so that even built my competitive spirit even more because I had to prove to them that I belonged. You know what I mean? I think at that time I was like – I was skinny still. You know what I mean? Everybody thought that I was going to redshirt my first year there at UCLA. So I always had this chip on my shoulder that I belonged, and it helped me. What was your high school coach like with you? Dave Kleckner. Yeah. The best high school coach out there, in my opinion, because he he was always big on fundamentals. Like, he can have a skilled player, but, like, it didn't matter to him. If you didn't know how to play the game the right way or you didn't play defense, you weren't going to play for him. And he kind of instilled that in me. And for me, as a player growing up, I always felt like, okay, I needed fundamentals to be good because when you're small, you need everything to work in your favor and not just be skilled. Like you can't just, I, I wasn't going to just go up and just dunk on you. I'm six foot. You know what I mean? Probably if that's shorter and smaller and skinnier. So for me, I relied on fundamentals and he helped me to see that. You show up at UCLA. Um, and the year before you got there, how good were they? Were they final four the year before you got there? So I think the year before I got there, Jordan Farmer, Aaron Afalo were there. And um, I think, I, I don't know if they, I think they, no, I don't know if they made it to the tournament or not before I got there. Either they made it to the, like the first round. I'm not sure, but I know they didn't make it far. They had a good core with Jordan Farmer, Aaron Afalo, Josh Shipp. And so, my my job coming in was kind of like, okay, like the spare Jordan Farmer, come in, come off the bench, be a spark plug, and just kind of go from there. And then I think my freshman year, we ended up having a good run and we ended up making it to the championship. Or, yeah, either, yeah, to the Final Four. Yeah. So, okay, before we get there, okay, you show up at uh, you show up in UCLA. Okay, who else is in your class, your recruiting class? My recruiting class, we had Mike Roll. Uh, we had uh, Luke Mabute, which I'm sure you guys know, Alfredo Boya, sure. who's from Cameroon, too, as well, and Ryan Wright, who's from Toronto. Um, that's interesting. Like, Roll, he just stopped playing, right? I mean, like, he, yeah, he literally the, stopped playing. I know. And of all the guys, like, you could make the argument outside of the NBA guys, he had the best career. Of the non-NBA guys. I mean, he had an incredible career playing overseas. No, for sure. Like, Mike Mike is, Mike is. I mean, you can make the argument he's probably one of the best shooters to come out of UCLA, too, as well. Like, he was a phenomenal shooter. I think, um, I would say, yeah, no, you might be right. Him and him and Josh Schiff, to me, are the most intriguing guys that could have did some things in the pro level, but, you know, had, had some good careers. So you walk in, but it's like kind of a ready-made team. What, what was... What what was it like? Like what was UCLA basketball? That was your, the first of three straight Final Fours. Yeah, so, what was that yeah, like? I mean, it was um, it was a phenomenal feeling. But I think we all had a chip on our shoulders because it was like it was weird because it's like even though we were going to UCLA, we all had a chip on our shoulders that we had to prove ourselves because we none of us were highly ranked. 
um, every time the season started, you know, we weren't like number one in the country. So we had to literally claw our way up to the, you know, top to, to prove ourselves. And so like, I think with that mix and the players that we were, that I was surrounded with, it, it made out for a good recipe for success. What was Howland like? I mean, that was, that was during the kind of the peak of the UCLA run for him. What was he like to play for? Uh, I mean, Ben Allen was another defensive guy. Um, you know, he, he was big on defense too. If you, if you couldn't play defense, you couldn't play for him. And I think that kind of instilled a lot of our defensive principles from there too. But, you know, for me coming from high school and being with Dave Kluckner, that was already inside me. But with Ben Hallen, it was at another level. It was at the next level. So, um, you know, if you go back to some of our games, our games is literally like 32 to 31. Uh, we'll win in the 30s, you know, low 30s, mid 30s. We weren't scoring a lot of points. And we had a lot of players that end up doing well in pro or became really, really good scorers in the NBA. So defensively was just always something that we hung our hat on. Yeah, but what, what was it like to you as a, as a freshman? He was really big on using my speed. He always told me, like, okay, I, my parents ran track. Like, you should be the fastest player in the country. So he was big on me with that. He was big on me, um, obviously, with defense. And he was just like, you got to – and then when you dribble, you got to make sure you have your dribble low. He was like, you're never going to make it to the NBA if you don't know how to do these things as a guard. So he was really, really tough on me, which I appreciate him for to even to this day because, you know, I did want to be an NBA guard. But, you know, he will remind me if you want to be an NBA guard, this is what you have to do. And so he was big on that. Um, but I think the biggest thing was his defense, Doug. Like, you know, his thing was like, you're so quick and you can pressure. And, and he was one of the reasons why I enjoy playing full court defense because he was big on that stuff. He was like, this disrupts a lot of the team's offense and how they start their their offense and you can be the a, a prime component of that. Like if you pick up full court and you disrupt them offensively, like it can really help our defense. And we already had a a, a bad a, a good you know backbone behind us, you know, with Luke Mabute, who was probably like six eight long. Uh you got Russell Westbrook who who can shut down any guard too back there. So I mean me picking up full court definitely helped out. What do you remember about your first tournament though? Yeah, so my first NCAA tournament, I do remember. Um, I don't remember much. I just remember coming into the game, and I, I think I only played like when my my role was like ten to fifteen minutes, and just come in and just be like a little spark plug and defensively and disrupt. Man, that was my role, and I loved it. You know what I mean? Because it was just like, you know, this was a niche that I knew that I can help the team with that nobody else can do. So I remember just playing against every single good guard when I get a chance, you know, coming off the bench and just trying to prove myself to him with such a short period of time. Um, and then I, we did, we didn't end up making a run. Um, everybody likes to look at the Gonzaga when we came back. I, that was my freshman year. Um, it was a really good game. Adam Morrison, um, Batista, who were really good players. And, you know, I, I, I was fortunate to be in that game to, to try to make a little bit of a spark. Um, but yeah, Okay, so 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 let's let's go to that game. Okay, let's go to that game. You guys were down how many? What was what was the worst? You were down. 
I want to say we were, I know we were down 15 plus. I don't want to say 20, but I think it was like around like between 10 to 15 points. But it, we, we were literally down the whole entire game. Like there was, I remember that first half we played horrible and we just couldn't make any shots. And beginning of the second half, it was kind of like the same thing. We didn't really turn it on to like the last, I would say, eight minutes or so. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, dang, like, this is really how we're going to end our season because we had made such a good run up until that point, and we didn't play our best basketball against one of the best teams in college basketball. So we just started making a run little by little. Next thing you know, it's a it, 15 comes out to 10, 10 comes out to, you know, six-point game, six-point game comes out to a two-point game with, like, you know, definitely like a minute left. Um and then, you know, as you see the video, I, you know, Jordan makes a steal, passes the loop. We go up by one and, and Asimars just starts crying. Like it, like the, the whole game was just crazy because it was, a, it was a tale of two halves. One half, we just did not play well. And the second half, we finally came on and started playing our best basketball. All right, that's it for part one of Darren Collison. You got the end was the Gonzaga game. Uh, we'll get to the final four. We'll get to the subsequent Final Fours. What happened to Ben Howland in, in Westwood? What happened with Ben Howland and Drew Holiday, right? That's kind of what led to some of the dysfunction in Westwood. And, of course, we got lots of NBA questions. If you like the All Ball podcast, feel free to download, to rate, review, and be sure to send us a note on Twitter, on Instagram, or on the uh, Facebook Doug Gottlieb Show fan page so that others can see that you, you like what you hear. I'm Doug Gottlieb. This is All Ball. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.